Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's my pleasure to have with me today, Vikram Rangnikar. Hi, Vikram. Hi, Nabil. How are you doing? Good. Vikram grew up in Mumbai, studied computer science at the University of Delaware. He founded Social Walk, a TechCrunch 50 startup that was early in the enterprise collaboration space. This led him to LinkedIn in early 2010, where he worked on various things from the API platform and ad serving to transitioning LinkedIn.com to a single page architecture. He now lives in Canada and is building an open source GraphQL to SQL compiler platform called SuperGraph aimed at making it easy to build applications backend without code. Vikram also has his own podcast called The Computing Podcast, so check it out whenever you get a chance. So Vikram, let's get started. How did you get started with security? Uh, Nabil, that's actually a really old story, so let me, you know, get into it. Uh, that's perfectly fine. We all started somewhere, right? It this, was a this while ago. back then in the days of, you know, the 8086 uh, IBM PC clones and and quick basic. Uh, there was a friend of mine, his, uh, I, I saw this like little basic program he had written. It actually said $8 input, a get password that had like, if $8 is equal to one, two, three, four, five, so, uh, you know, access, print access granted. <laughs> Some reason that blew me away. This, this, this was like, you know, it, it's kind of had that experience that you see computing code on like a movie screen. It was kind of like that. And uh, somehow I, I always like, I, I, I have this faint memory of that being my first interest in computer security somehow. And, uh, and I got myself one of those computers. Uh, my dad helped, obviously, and uh, it had like 40 megabytes. But, you know, I, I, I learned so much on it. And, you know, I kind of like computer security was always my motivation to stick to computers for some reason. I don't know, back then. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I was trying to figure out all these like interesting things. I was like, what is this thing called a virus? How does that work? How does, how does this, you know, how, how do these passwords work? How does, you know, encryption work? It was just, it was so much to learn back then. It was so hard to learn too, because it wasn't like, I couldn't Google this up. Uh, it was all these text files and stuff you had to download from bulletin boards. And yeah. Um, and I, you know, like a lot of other, uh, I think people in the space also, uh, uh, say that movies are obviously a big part of uh, keeping you excited and, you know, security somehow. Uh, I know a lot of people point to war games, but surprisingly, I, I didn't see that movie till much later. For me, uh, if I recall, the first movie was probably um, Sneakers. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how I got my hands on that tape, but it just blew me away. I mean, you know, the, and, and so many years later, I'm still a fan of it. I, you know, I have some friends who are still interested in it. We still have like watching sessions and uh, people still haven't seen it. <laughs> it's, it's rare. It's not as popular as like hackers and, and war yeah. games and, yes. and hackers well, too. I, I did like hackers too. And surprisingly, I even liked the, uh, like the net that had some good reverse engineering stuff in it. Yeah, that was interesting. Or Swordfish is another Swordfish. one that's really popular. Yeah, yeah but uh, that was a lot later though. I, yes, I correct. 
And then there was Matrix and all that. But yeah, I mean, I'd say early on, probably sneakers, hackers, and the net. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I got my start in computer security. And, uh, you know, I, it kind of got me to learn assembly language and all these things. And uh, I, you know, I was kind of in that world. And, uh, you know, I, that, that, that kind of motivated me to learn more about computers. So you have a, a very interesting experience from a long time ago where you helped build the first computer crimes unit in Bombay uh, with the police yeah. department. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and some of the main challenges that you face trying to do something like that? So, uh, you know, not just Bombay, I would say that's probably was one of the first in India. So the whole country. So, uh, uh, back then, you know, the, well, internet was kind of just getting into, uh, people's hands and, uh, you know, there were, but there were smartphones, kind of the early generation of smartphones. This was in the 2000, this was around 2000. So I was, I was pretty young. I was in my you know, early twenties, late teens. And, uh, it, it was like all these little issues that started, like there were like, I think the photo the ability to take a photograph was, you know, misused by a lot of people. There was some version of bullying of, you know, women online. And there were these very, uh, I would say, uh, not highly sophisticated computer crimes happening. But, you know, there was also a fair amount of hacking. There were de website defacements that kind of started happening. You know, before that, no one really cared. You know, you mm -hmm. deface a website and it would stay defaced for a year. No one's even no going one about it. No one yeah. would even know it happened. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk to some government uh, org and they're like, we have a website. And it's like, you know, like 15 subdomains down, like <laughs> x.ea.b.in.gov. No one's ever gone there. But yeah, you know, things were just kind of coming into perspective. And there was absolutely no, there was like, no one had any know-how, you know, people were like, oh, this thing has a computer virus, you know, I won't go near it because I might catch it. That was the kind of it world. Very before. misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, there was just no know-how at all. I mean, no mm -hmm. one knew what an IP address is. They thought this is something like, you know, dangerous, like electricity or something. I remember when when my first computer got a virus, my mom told me that it was because I didn't clean it enough. Mm -hmm. So she was upset that I wasn't cleaning my room properly. And that's probably why the computer had a virus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's fair enough. So uh, there's probably a mom just trying to get you to clean your room. So. Pretty much, pretty much. She, 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 was, she was smarter than I ever will be. Time, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, now I just tell my kids your YouTube is slow because your rooms are too dirty. Mm -hmm. Clean them up. Mm -hmm. Do you throttle their speed on the, on the router? Throttle it up as they start cleaning their room. So, you know, at, at that early of a stage of building a cyber crimes unit, um, how hard was it to educate the people who were actually going to be part of the unit? And then, of course, how hard was it to educate people who were coming with, with problems and challenges? So I, I was like, you know, a kid and honestly, I just kind of stumbled into it. So the government had kind of decided to do this and they tasked some people with it and it was in the newspaper and, and I had helped some colleges in the neighborhood with like their, you know, like computing stuff during their uh, college festivals and stuff like that. And someone knew someone, he kind of said, oh, there's this kid, he knows, you know, computers. And, and somehow I got a call saying, hey, would you like to come and kind of talk to the police and see, you know, tell them about, you know, this thing called a computer. So I kind of just ended up there and um, I, I was like telling them about IP addresses and stuff. I had this little like, conference, that, you know, obviously I had to start off with, with hard disk and keyboard and, and you mm -hmm. know, why there are so many keys on that thing and, and uh, you know, and uh, so yeah, I'd say it was relatively, you know, unsophisticated and uh, 
there were some other people who kind of got involved too back then. There was um, there was a famous author called Vijay, Mr. Vijaymukhi. Uh, he's written all these books on uh, undocumented DOS, and so he was really popular. He had his own classes, so he was kind of involved. And um, there was this incident where, uh, so the police obviously, you know, are fast learners, and I, you know, they never they knew from day one that they didn't they didn't want to be computer experts. They just wanted to do the policing part. So. Um, you know, most like I, I wasn't like involved in any of that. I wasn't, you know, police. Uh, but essentially, when they got an IP address, they were able to like go down to the the right telecom department, get the address, mm-hmm. and you know, this again, the hackers were not as sophisticated either, right? I mean, they, Correct. They were literally hacking from their home. Yeah. So, so you could trace it back to yeah. where they were from yeah. their ISP, or or more likely, they were in a cyber cafe. But then, right. You know, you know, it was usually a cyber cafe that they frequented every day. So mm-hmm. it's no different. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd say it was like, you know, everyone is a script kitty kind of thing back then. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, but so the police just basically did policing. I mean, they, they, they just, you know, and the, it was a matter of just getting IP addresses. And then, you know, obviously from then on, they, they tried to, you know, talk to the guy and they figured out what he did and, and, uh, and, but most of the work, uh, the kind of uh, stuff that I saw wasn't really hacking. It was more, you know, uh, harassment of sort, you know, online, like, you know, using photographs and stuff. And there was a lot of like people's phones weren't even, you know, connected to the internet or anything. But the guy took like pictures he shouldn't have and mm-hmm. he's like, you know, blackmailing someone of those pictures and. And the police just wanted to get those pictures out of the phone or something. You know, the phone didn't, you know, back then didn't even have a data plan. So, And then, of course, in the early 2000s, there was these popular chat channels too, right? There was like IRC and yes. and um, ICQ and all these yeah. other chat platforms that I think were also heavily leveraged when uh, there was the cyberbullying or the, the start of cyberbullying. There was, there was, but that was still, you know, there was even most of those servers weren't even within the the, the borders. So there was like mm-hmm. literally nothing you could do. Right. You know, I mean, the people were, but then the IPs you couldn't really get from the servers. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, so, uh, so, you know, it was pretty limited. Uh, but the idea was that they wanted to create a law around, uh, around computer crimes. And there wasn't one, essentially, you know, they, they couldn't charge a hacker or whatever. And... And uh, they came up with, obviously, with more than me involved with lots of like lawyers and stuff. And they came up with something called the, the IT Act 2000. So this was the first computer crimes law in India. And uh, my involvement was with kind of like, you know, as an honorary kind of consultant, just like reading it and trying to, you know, say, okay, this is blatantly wrong here. You know, mm-hmm. you can't like, you know, like you're, you're mixing up the word IP address with phone number. Mm-hmm. They don't mean the same. You cannot mm-hmm. dial someone with his IP address. You know? So, uh, so there was, you know, that that kind of uh, like you know, high level helping with the drafts and stuff like that. And, right. And, and generally, you know, even even giving my inputs and things like, okay, you know, this is not something we want to go down this hole. Or, or you know, I think it was great because you know I come from a, from like an open source slash hacker mindset and kind of having you know me at the table or people like me at the table, you know added a perspective there so it doesn't go off the you know rockers per se so you bring up a good point you know you're someone who has a security mindset and you've worked with various diverse security related topics or security incidents so when you started your company and you were part of the startup 
how did you approach security? Because a lot of the times we talk to startups and they tell us, oh, I don't have time for security mm -hmm. or that's too expensive or we can't invest in it. So someone with a security background, how did you approach security within a startup? That's actually a great question. But to give you some like background on generally my journey through security, I, I think a lot of my uh, you know, like exposure to security, uh, the security world and just being deep diving into it was limited to, I'd say, before I got on like the main internet. And kind of when I got on the internet, mm -hmm. I, I saw there was, there was, it was so, you know, the technology was so big and there were so many routes I could go down it. And my interests kind of started to wane towards like building stuff. It was more, you know, distributed computing and, and you know, compilers and languages and, you know, web, building web stuff and all of those things. And I think security itself took a backseat generally. But I obviously had, uh, you know, a, a decent understanding of, you know, those things. And uh, that definitely helped. So, uh, like with my first startup, this was right uh, after college. Uh, we were, uh, we wanted to do a startup in the US and uh, there was no way we could because of visa stuff. And so we ended up uh, founding it in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And um, we were, uh, you know, and security wasn't on the top of our minds, but I, you know, because we were just trying to get a product out and, but I knew that this could be an issue. Like one fine morning, we could, you know, as, as someone, you know, who has this in the back of his mind, I knew that it was, you know, I was playing with fire because I could just basically wake up one morning and everything could be, you know, deleted or, or whatever, right? I mean, and uh, then basically we're, we've lost everything. Early on, we were really bad about it. So we, we were running on our own server. You know, I don't even know whether it was patched or not. I don't think I had the competence at that point to like, <laughs> You know, I had a firewall up pretty much blocking everything, but, you know, I, there was still an open port to PHP and I, you know, I did not know for the life of me if that was hackable or whatever. And, um, and, and uh, sorry, actually it wasn't PHP. We were based on uh, Java. So we were using like Java Hibernate and we had other issues like Java itself was like, leak, the, you know, the libraries were leaking and our server was going down by itself overnight. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so there were all these hurdles that we were trying to overcome in 2005. And um, so, and, and security obviously was also there. So there was all of this stuff going on and something happened. Uh, Google launched a product called App Engine. So this was a cloud platform and um, this was uh, one of the first serverless cloud platforms. You give it your code and you, it basically takes care of everything. It came, uh, you know, it came with a database built in, everything that would scale. So that really got me thinking. And I said, okay, you know, there's, no matter what I do, there's no way I can afford the, a security team that Google can. You know, it's, it's a shared infrastructure, so everyone's dealing with the same problems. You know, there is very little the attacker can do even if he manages to get into the thing. You can't really you know, open up random ports or have, you know, things going back. It's per request. So it kind of reduced the entire attack surface area uh, and also reduced all our complexity around operations. And so I basically jumped on it. And I think security was like the main thing in my mind when I chose App Engine because I was like, okay, you know, now I'm standing on the shoulder of giants and it's also a very limited environment. So, you know, and to add to all of that, we just could focus on writing code and nothing else. Was there any focus at all on the security of your code and your application that you were developing? Less so. I mean, uh, we could, yes, uh, we, you know, we were generally, uh, we, the application we were developing was called Social Walk. It was, um, it was like, a, a, so it was social networking applied to the enterprise. So it, it was kind of like, you know, how Slack is today, but this was built for Google Apps. So you could share a Google Calendar invite into a feed. You could share, uh, you know, documents. It was kind of like Facebook meets Google Apps-ish. 
and one of our competitors was Yammer back then. So, um, gotcha. And um, and yes, it was a lot of social content on there. So our issues were more around cross-site scripting, you know, yeah, SQL injection, more than people actually breaking in and taking over our backend. You know, it was more people uh, believe steal someone else's cookie and then you know get access to their data. So there was a lot of that. That was definitely concerning because um, we had embedded stuff in there and the browsers were not as secure as they are today. So there were definitely too many holes and there was no, almost nothing we could do about it. I mean, there was, there was, yes, there was some level of JavaScript sanitization we would do and stuff, but you, you could have iframes opened in there when someone embeds something and that iframe could then, you know, take over and the attack surface was really big and complex. I Even today, I mean, it's not all there, but the, you know, the browsers have a far, far more sophisticated security model and many more tweaks you can do. And so that's true. Uh, is there was there any particular vulnerability that you guys discovered and fixed that you can share now? Maybe you didn't want to share it earlier. There were probably a ton of you know you could put JavaScript somewhere we didn't expect you could, and then it just kind of ran, and you could basically do document dot cookie and and just like get the guy's cookie and mm-hmm. send it off somewhere. Uh, yeah, that's as far as I remember. I don't remember anything. Just you know. Gotcha. No worries. So let's talk a little more about your current project. Uh, you're building a project called Supergraph. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. So I uh, spend a lot of time building apps, um, you know, everywhere, LinkedIn or, you know, at startups and my own everything. And uh, it always came down to writing a lot of database code. And, you know, it was always the same stuff. You need you need a user, you need a post, you need the comments on the post, you need all the, you know, the information about each author of each comment and, how many votes they, yeah, it's this weird graph you have to like walk and and most of the time you're writing some kind of inefficient SQL to do this. And this is like uh, the story of your life if you're developing web products and there's no way around this. And, and then, you know, the UI changes and then they're like, oh, let's change this back end. You go change all this code. You need to maintain all of this. And, and often you're writing inefficient SQL because you're making like multiple calls when you could have done it with one. So I just wanted to be rid of this. And uh, and I was kind of fine looking for a solution because this made me hate my life and I did not want to write any more of this code anymore. And uh, I stumbled onto GraphQL and um, I thought, hmm, this is interesting. This is a way to describe what data you want. But all the solutions out there basically uh, just gave you like a parsed out version of that and said, hey, you, you go fetch the data on your own wasn't solving my problem. I still had to write all that backend code. And I was like, okay, if this describes a thing, I, if I could somehow convert this into SQL, then, um, you know, because I've worked on compilers and stuff, my idea was basically this was a cross compiler of sort, uh, you know, transpiler, whatever word you want to use for it, they all kind of you know, overlap. And if you could compile it into SQL, then, you know, you're home free. And this, is, this could be great because now even SQL is too complicated for most people. It's another thing, you know, like you'd be surprised how many developers cannot go beyond the basic select, insert. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it can get complicated. It's, yeah. it's very easy to get complicated. Yeah, I could grab someone and say, which join do I use here? And it'll take a bit of Googling to figure that out for most people. And there are new type mm-hmm. of joins being added in lateral and blah, blah, mm-hmm. that people don't even know what they are. Yeah. And so uh, if I could encode all of that knowledge into a compiler, this would be magical. And that was what I was chasing. And that's what Supergraph does. What it does is it takes a deeply nested uh, GraphQL query. Could be like, give me post, users, the comments, you know, likes, not likes, you know, options, blah, blah, whatever you want, right? 
And you just give this to Supergraph and Supergraph will write, convert that into a single SQL statement. So it doesn't matter how much, how many tables you touch or whatever, and it'll return back the JSON and the structure you need. That's it. So you don't have to write. And, and often I show people like a GraphQL query and I show them the JSON and I'm like, you know, imagine how much code and how much time that's uh, saved you. It's unimaginable. Like for me, it saved me like months of development work. Is a major part of what you were doing was the biggest challenge, the lexical analysis piece of, of taking, mm -hmm. taking the code and converting it and then being able to convert it to the, the actual well, SQL? Uh, I'd say the hardest part was really mapping the, so the lexical analysis was, um, was uh, you know, not as challenging because GraphQL is relatively a simple language. Uh, but then, you know, in the compiler, you build an EST out of that, the, mm -hmm. the abstract, the abstract syntax, syntax tree. And, you know, from there, you kind of have to map that to SQL. And SQL is not, it's very weird. There are lots of things you have to do before because you want to do something after. It's, it's hard to write from the, you have to like walk that tree multiple times, gather all the information you need, and then walk it again to like generate all the SQL you need. So um, it's, it's, SQL is just, I think, I, I don't like it personally, you know, I, I think it's, it's not a well-designed uh, thing. And again, that's why adoption of SQL is surprisingly low, you know, in the developer community. Most people just hide behind uh, ORMs which don't do a great job either. Most of them are mm -hmm. pretty bad. Or they, you know, they use really inefficient SQL where instead of like using a join, they'll use like 20 SQL calls, right? Correct. And, or, or, you know, or people just skip it and try to go to a, the, the schema-less world. Mm -hmm. And all of these are symptoms of, you know, SQL not being as easy as it should be, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, people like, oh, let's use a document schema-less store or whatever because they don't want to deal with SQL. And I think a lot of people now, too, don't have that computer science background either, where they dig deeper into query optimization, because, you mm -hmm. know, you can actually apply a lot of mathematics and, and logic-based formula to mm -hmm. simplify and optimize queries. But I have a feeling that a lot of universities don't really teach that anymore. That's possible. But, you know, I hope the, I hope the, uh, the, the internal compiler built into, inside Postgres or whatever does that for me. You know? Correct. Uh, the, the whole idea is to offload uh, work from my brain to the computer. And essentially, that's what Supergraph is doing for me. It's offloading. It's taking all. And, and as my knowledge of SQL or Postgres improves and adds new capabilities, all I do is I encode that in the compiler, and now for free, everyone gets it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go through 10,000 SQL statements and change them. You know? Right. So, and, and GraphQL is really easy for most people, developers to adopt because it kind of looks like JSON. Mm -hmm. Very just, you know, very simple. You just, you know, say these are the field names or little curlies. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really like uh, motivated by that, you know, what we managed to achieve on that project. And that's, that's been my pet project for a while. So once you're done with this, what's next? Is there another pet project you have in mind that you're looking to start? Uh, no, I'm actually uh, using, uh, you know, Supergraph to build some some things. But uh, but there's a long way to go. There's, you know, there's, there's, it's a deep feature list that you have to reach. Subscriptions and a whole bunch of stuff. And the community is growing. That's probably going to take a lot of effort to just, you know, help people through using it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to be working on this for the next 10 years. If I could. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I know that you have uh, a family uh, that mm -hmm. you're very close to. So, 
Can you share with us some of the things you're doing now, given the the lockdown or shelter in place that we're in, uh, to stay busy and keep your family entertained? So, well, another good question, I guess, you know, for everyone our age. I we 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 do a lot of homeschooling. I think one thing the lockdowns really helped us with is we were always considering homeschooling. We have friends who do it, and and this gave us a chance to experiment without really taking the leap. And uh, you know, like, and we and this is we we approach. We're trying to build, make education fun for our kids and fun for us at the same time. So uh, that's something we're always involved in changing. Like, we just spend a few hours in the morning and maybe an hour in the evening, and. And that's all surprisingly takes, not mm-hmm. 10 hours in the school. You know? Right. And uh, they're loving that. Uh, in addition to that, I, we, I do a lot of Lego with them. So we have this whole Lego city that we're building on the dining tables totally taken over. And uh, <laughs> my kids get inspired by all these YouTubers who are building like entire Lego cities. So we're, um, so, you, you know, I do not have, you know, 5,000 blocks. But uh, they're they're adding to it slowly, and and it's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but but worth it. It's it's worth totally, it. Totally, totally. And this other thing I wanted to just kind of throw in there was uh, Lego Boost. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, my kids have started to really like it. It's it's like a robotics Lego for kids. It used to be Mindstorm before. This is a brand new thing. It comes with its own like scripting, uh, like not really scripting. It's, it comes with a programming language that's based on the MIT Scratch. Mm-hmm language and the interesting thing is i could i even tried this you could actually take the mit scratch web interface and hook it to that so oh, that's it comes awesome. with an add-on that you run on your computer and then you can write code on the mit scratch web ui and you can then control this robot oh that's fantastic home. so it's basically a a watered down version of lego technique but with for kids to easily program lego mindstorm mindstorm but not technique. And in fact, Mindstorm has been deprecated now and they have like a new one coming out. Okay. So even to kind of, you know, to match Boost, because I think Boost at this point is probably more sophisticated than the old Mindstorm. Mm-hmm. It has all kinds of sensors, you know, light, color, touch, uh, you know, like flip sensors, you know, and distance. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to like go beyond what is in the manuals right now. And it's, you know, I'm this YouTube is great for that. People yeah. are doing some really interesting. This one guy has built a self-driving car with it. Oh, wow. You check that link out. <laughs> All right, yeah. I'll check it out. And I know that I watched a show called Lego Masters. I think mm-hmm. I was telling you about it last time we spoke. I always, I'm always fascinated by the artistic pieces uh, that people can create and just the creativity that people have when they're building things with Legos. It always amazes me because I'm not a creative person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I always appreciate the art that gets created. It's not just about the science and engineering. Yeah, okay. It's also um, art. artistic, uh, which which I do enjoy. Yeah, it blows me away. When I see those videos, I feel so inadequate. <laughs> uh, have your kids built anything uh, interesting that blew you away when you when you saw them created for the first time? I mean, honestly, everything they do is like, you know, I'm, I'm like surprised. Like, how do you think of that, right? I mean, and like... Yeah, you you always like you think of them as like kids, and you're like, okay, maybe they need your help, and and they're like way ahead out there, you know. <laughs> they're gonna be talking about how old and not tech savvy we are in the next ten years, probably when they have their own technology and oh, new sure. things that they're working with. Well, Vikram, thank you so much. This was uh, really fun, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with me today. Thank you. This was great. 
Thank you, Nava. Awesome. We'll talk soon. Bye. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.